The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture for this morning is from Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 9. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox." The nursing, nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, and the waters cover the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Jordan. Well, I'm so thankful that no matter what, uh, we're able to sing and preach and, um, and hear the word of God together this morning. <clears throat> you know, um, right now during Christmas, I'm sure you have gotten into all those things. I've mentioned we've started watching all the movies and setting up everything uh, far early, way earlier than today, uh, pre-Thanksgiving. Uh, but one of the one of the films um, actually that was an old story is a Christmas Carol. Charles Dickens. Some of you, most of you, are probably familiar with it. If you aren't, you've probably some seen some iteration of it because it's been made uh, into uh, everything from a cartoon to a classic called Scrooge with the uh, wonderful Bill Murray. Uh, <clears throat> great rendition story of uh, typically of uh, a man who. Um, is wrapped up in his own success. This is the, the kind of thread through all of the uh, even iterations of it. And is visited by a ghost, particularly saying, you're gonna be visited by three spirits that are gonna help pull you out of all the, the miserly, you know, scroogedness that you're in in order that you can enjoy and um, give and really be wrapped up in the Christmas spirit. So he sent three spirits, the past, the present, and the future spirits to show him his past and why he is the way he is, his present and what's going on around him that he's not aware of, and usually the future of what's gonna happen if he continues down that path. And, uh, you know, whether they're, um, you know, the, the old Uh, tale, which is not as comedic, or you have the uh, Bill Murray version or others that may be a little more funny, it really ends the same. It's how can these three spirits pull you in and help you understand this? And and, and, and Dickens actually wrote this classic based on 
real social concern that he had that was motivated in, in, uh, in his time. And uh, particularly in his growing up through um, depression and poverty and difficulty, he saw that around him, wanted to have a story, a beautifully written story that would draw others into awareness out of their own to uh, equity and care for those around them. And as the story goes at the end, uh, he's pulled um, into uh, the, the Scrooge person, whoever it is, <laughs> is pulled out of their miserliness. And uh, in the original classic, I love it, it says this, I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. You know, as, as Dickens looked out over the disappointment and uh, devastation, difficulty, all of the things that he saw that were in his own life, he wanted to write a story, a narrative that would draw him and everyone else out of both, all three, their past, present, and future, to live accordingly that would bring joy. And, you know, the job of a prophet was really interesting. Reading from Isaiah, we've been in Isaiah for a couple weeks now, and Isaiah is a book in the Old Testament, a large prophetic book. And typically when we think of prophets in the Old Testament, we think of people that are just giving, uh, you know, future things. It's actually not. It's not foretelling, it's forthtelling. They're bringing forward the word of God rather than trying to predict something. And what Isaiah and most, all the prophets are doing is this. They're actually kind of like lawyers. They're a little bit like Dickens. They're actually trying to, to show the people of Israel their past, how they've navigated their past, how they've disobeyed God. They're showing them present. They're showing why there's devastation around them. And particularly in this one, there's a lot. And then they're showing their future, that there is a redemption coming. That in spite of whatever they've done, whatever they've, they've experienced, there's one who's gonna come redeem it and they need to look forward to him. But here's the difference in the Christmas story, what we're reading in Isaiah 11. Difference between Christianity and a, and a Christmas carol is, is this. What Advent means is instead of us being reminded of our past and now living hopefully in the present with, a, with an eye that everything can be okay in the future, we actually have somebody who came in. That's what the word Advent means. It means arrived, broke into, came into our past, lived our present, and sets the course of our future. And we have somebody that's a representative that comes into all three of those things because we know what all three of those things are like for us. Uh, I identify with the Dickens character a lot. There's so many things in my past that I'm, you know, horrified with and we are shaped by. There's so many things in my present I want to change and I'm unaware of. There's so many things in my future that I hope for. How in the world can we believe that? Advent is different in that way. Advent is the real story, the real narrative that we're all swept into, that we all sing about, that we just heard a beautiful song sung about the little town of Bethlehem. Who was born in that? That takes our past, our present, and our future and redeems them all for us to live in. And that's what we're gonna look at today. We're gonna look at our past, present, and future wrapped up in the figure that is painted in this portrait of Isaiah 11, verses one through nine. <clears throat> it's a really great portrait. We're gonna look at the past. And verse one begins this way. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Isaiah is looking out and we're kind of catching the verse from before the previous chapter, 
But essentially what Isaiah is looking out over is basically a forest that has been cut down. Uh, We talked a little bit last week from Isaiah chapter 6 about a stump. This is him looking out over myriad of stumps. Imagine that. Looking over a forest that has literally just been like a weed whacker, just cut across. Whether it be by a storm, saws, or whatever it is. It is just every tree has has, has has fallen. And yet there's this one small shoot, this little twig, this little branch, this little thing popping up out of one stump. And there's something different about this twig. There's a specific thing. And different than last week, we talked a little bit about a holy seed. That was actually talking about a remnant of people. That stump was, was the people of God and there was gonna be a remnant of God's people, a small gathering of them. Even though it looks like all hope is lost, there would be a small gathering. This is actually a particular person. This is a different stump because it says out of the stump of Jesse, out of a person and from a line. And see what the, the, the trees being cut down are the picture of is this giant superpower. Years and years as Isaiah's looking out over the disappointment. He's looking around him seeing all of the things that have gone wrong. He's seeing the past of Israel. And what their past is, is thinking that they could live without him. Oftentimes the line says in there, um, particularly of the kings of Israel, it said they did what was right in their own eyes. And they tried to live, they tried to rule, they tried to make the kingdom right, but from what they thought was best and what they thought worked. And eventually their hearts curved in on themselves as they do ours and led it astray. And what happened often was superpowers at this time, like Assyria, other nations that were much stronger, much greater, came in and really wiped them out. And what we're seeing is the stumps left by a domination of this superpower. They were, the people were deported. The, they were despondent and, and apathetic because all the kings that they had had set up for themselves that thought they could rule them could not, and they didn't. But there was one stump there and one shoot sticking out of it. And this was the stump of Jesse. The stump of Jesse and and why Jesse's mentioned is Jesse was the father of David. A lot of people may not know that. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you can look actually in Matthew chapter one or you can look back in 1 Samuel. But Jesse was a father of many sons and he had, David was the smallest of those. But the reason it's saying that, that Jesse is the father of David, this would rec- for, for the people of Israel, they would recognize the name Jesse and they'd think, from David, this is from him, from David. And David, his name even echoed into their minds and their hearts a past of security. Imagine that. When, when all evil was put at bay, when everything was set right, they feel, felt secure, that the, the, the the injustice, the, the false things around them seem to be under control. Things popped up but seemed to be handled just right away. Seemed like equity was all around them. The things that, that, that made their kingdom great, made them feel secure and, and, and happy and whole. That's what it reminded them of. But yet all they can see right now is a forest cut down. And see, this is the thing that makes no sense because the other thing wasn't just when Jesse's name is mentioned, they think of David and this amazing kingdom that they lived in. It was a past where God actually came to David himself and said, your throne will never be taken down. There will be someone on your throne forever. And yet here they are 
knowing right after that, even right after David, the kingdom began to divide, split. People took over the, everything. And even up to the, the current time of Jesus, there was still this idea of Rome is the superpower. Where in the world is this king who's to be on the throne? And there's the shoot. The word shoot even meaning twig. There's something there. There's, there's something there that, that is to come up and take over. You know, even in the Christmas readings, we read a lot about the city of David, that, that uh, there was gonna be one who was born in the city of David. Why is this such a big deal? Because this line, more than anything else in history, it made history. Yesterday was an amazing uh, day. I love watching, I'm sure you do, during Thanksgiving, uh, watching a lot of football. Uh, even if you don't, you probably don't have a choice because it's on nearly every channel. Uh, <laughs> But uh, yesterday was a really big day uh, for uh, um, college football, sports in general, uh, particularly Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt uh, had uh, Sarah Fuller, who was the goalie from the soccer team, uh, senior from the soccer team, come and as the kicker, as they've had uh, COVID issues as well as just needing uh, people to play. Uh, Coach Mason made a great decision and uh, thought out of the box and brought in Sarah Fuller, first woman in, uh, in history to be a part of what's called a power five, one of the major conferences to play college football in a male dominated sport. And here's what was incredible about that. As um, <laughs> Vandy has had kind of a difficult year, in fact, uh, more than most, they have not actually won a game this year, which I'm a Vanderbilt fan, so I think we're gonna win every game and uh, I seem to be disappointed. And uh, yeah, even yesterday, uh, was more than um, normal. Vanderbilt did not even score a point. They lost 40, I think it was 41 to zero. And yet I could not take my eyes off the television because in midst of all the disappointment uh, of the season, uh, all the Vandy fans, even like myself, even if you weren't a Vandy fan, you're sitting there watching, you're going, gosh, this is a rough game. <laughs> and yet I could not, take my eyes off. I didn't want to go outside. I did not want to leave because I did not want to miss in live talk. I didn't want to pause it. I didn't want to go back. I wanted to watch Sarah Fuller make history. And so my eyes were glued, no matter what was around it. Because here's the point. Everyone was glued to their TV because despite the devastation of Andy's history, history was being made. There was something there. And this is the, the idea of what Israel is looking at when they see that shoot, that twig. They are looking at devastation. They know their past. They know it is awful. And yet, when they see that shoot, they think history is being made here. Because when it says a shoot from the stump of Jesse, why not say a shoot of David? Because the point is, the shoot is from Jesse. This isn't just another king like David. Because if you look back in, in the uh, book of Kings, you see the line of kings come and they're all compared to David. This one's different. This figure, this king, is from Jesse himself. This is actually not just like David. This is another David. History is being made. And for them looking in on this, it was, wow, something's happening here. Not just regrowth. This is something different and new. And it's hard. When we talk about past, to talk about our past at all is difficult. To talk about past with someone is incredibly vulnerable. 
That's why so many of us, when we have a good relationship, maybe even be in therapy, the things that we cover so often, the things we go in for often for therapy or those kind of things are the things we don't often end up talking about as much because we start uncovering why is the thing really there? Because our past is really with us. It really is a vulnerable thing to let someone not only into your past, but to experience your past with you. To feel the devastation, to know the disappointment, to feel those things. It is a hard, hard thing. And here's the thing that Christmas does that's so amazing. Christmas and this tender shoot that is sticking up, literally the the translation, a twig. (laughs) You can just see it, something that's so vulnerable is that your past and mine are wrapped up in swaddling clothes in a manger. It is the fact that in the birth of Jesus himself, he's not just coming to be born in this world, he's coming to be born to take into himself your past. The shoot is coming up, notice, in the midst of devastation. This isn't like in another part of the land or something else. This isn't even named, it's up In through all the cut down trees, from one stump comes one twig. Because it wasn't enough for him to just be born or come. He had to be born up in, up through the devastation. He becomes vulnerable. As I was reading um, (laughs) the other day, I'm not sure uh, I've read this many places, but as a sermon, a friend of mine who delivered, talked about the birth of Jesus, that some psychologists say that one of the most traumatic things a human being can go through is birth itself, to feel that struggle, to be in the closest and warmth of being with and then being born and thrust into the world and all its just noises and fear and everything else. God's commitment to his relationship to David to say, you're gonna have someone on the throne was so powerful, so important to God that he came through a virgin and had birth and came through the trauma of that. Think about, think about even the Christmas carol we sing. Oh, come all ye faithful. It says, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb is one of the major lines of that. Think about this. The eternal God himself didn't even balk at being born as we would thrust into the lowest depths of vulnerability and trauma in order to take up every portion of our past, beginning at the very start. I love how St. Augustine, one of my favorite uh, theologians from the fourth century, says it. He says, man's maker was made man, that the bread, that is capital bread, might be hungry, that the fountain, that is capital F fountain, would thirst that the light sleep, the way be tired from the journey itself, that the strength itself might be made weak and that life might die. That all the eternal is wrapped up into that. And it even goes on to say that from this branch his root shall bear fruit. It's not enough for him just to to be a, a, a shoot, a tender twig, but he bears fruit. He grows into this amazing human being This figure comes up with distinct character into the present so that he can live different. Why is this figure so different from others? Talks about that in his present. See, what actually sets this part 
this twig apart from all the others is his actual character. Look at it in verse two and uh, two and three. It starts as, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Here's the thing. If you read the gospels, this is the, the cat out of the bag. This figure is Jesus. This is our Christmas story. But the reason that it is, and there's been a debate before about, is this really the Messiah? Because this sounds like the suffering servant and yet the one who's coming, is, is he a sufferer? Is he a great king? Isaiah's trying to say he's both. If you read the Gospels, one of the things that they're always trying to tear Jesus down for is where he came from. They're trying to destroy his character by destroying his past and then take it into the present and say, you're worth nothing. They they will often say to him things like, if you read through the, the narrative accounts of Jesus, where he was born. The place you were born, Jesus, makes no sense. It was it's not for a king. Why would you, who is to be a ruler, and you're supposed to be this great king, son of God, be born there? They say how he was born. Born of this peasant woman, uh, lowly, under a carpenter? I mean, they begin to try and dismantle his character in any and every way. But here's the point. Whether they're trying to attack his pedigree, his education, his upbringings, all of it, Jesus as king had to become lower. He had to be all underneath all the disappointment of the rulers and kings that came before in order to also surpass all the greatness of those who came after. In order to show that he was below and above. I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible says it. Jesus Storybook Bible says it this way. Where do you think it would a king be born? It's talking about the three wise men following it says, so the three wise men followed the star through the streets of Bethlehem, out of the nice part of town, through the not so nice part of town, into the really not so nice part of town, down a little dirt track until it stopped right over a little house. But wait, it wasn't a palace and there weren't any guards or servants or flags or red carpets or trumpets or anything. Did they get it wrong? Or was this what God had meant? See, Jesus had to come in that way. He came in such a distinct, different way that kings came to worship him because they realized this one is coming to go beneath all of our disappointments to surpass all of the greatness and everything in between. And we know that because he heals it by who he is. In verse two, it says, the spirit of the Lord rested upon him. That meant that God's actual spirit, and if you read in the Old and New Testament, this happens, often where God's spirit will rest on someone. This spirit resting means that God is empowering, he's going in. And sometimes it means that he's actually with, in, and through. And what this means, you see it in the New Testament when Jesus gets baptized and it says the Holy Spirit lands on him almost like a dove. It says there's a spirit not just resting on him, but specifically how the spirit's gonna work in him as a king and distinct characteristics of that. The first is wisdom and understanding. His intellectual life, his leadership, his, he's judicial, he's not arrogant. Wisdom means that he doesn't see the world revolving around him, he sees it revolving around God. He shapes his world to that, he has understanding. He knows how to intellectually decide without putting himself in the middle. So is the spirit of counsel and might, his practical life, strategy and strength. Sometimes this is even talked about with war, making strategy towards war and what to do, the right right course of action. 
Imagine this. Every king was surrounded with counselors that would give advice to what the decision was. This is a king that would need none of that, but would actually divvy the council out. He needed none coming in, but it all went out from him with counsel and might. There was never a course of action, never a decision he made that was out of step or out of line with that. This figure addresses not only that, but the disorder, finally the relational life, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, that he is connected to God. And verse four and five say this, but with righteousness, he shall judge the poor. And then verse five, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. There's, there's this, this description of what he is, that his righteousness, and righteousness is kind of hard to, to navigate some in the Bible, to translate, but what it means is a straightness. And I, I saw, as one commentator said, that the real ingredient of righteousness here is that its relationship is straight between both God and man. That there's a relationship, a connection, a straightness. See, the idea is that before, and oftentimes when we think of Christmas, and I've been asked this question before as a pastor about Jesus. Okay, is the point of Christianity that Jesus just dies for sin? If so, why didn't just Jesus be born and then die? Why didn't he come at the beginning of humanity, take it all in flesh, and then that's it? But the real issue of Christianity is before his death, he was living out addressing sin. Between his birth and his death was this movement of him actually addressing everything in sin. All the things that we deal with. It's not just on the cross he deals with the penalty for sin. Yes, exactly. But his whole life is addressing every single sin in ours. See, he's aligning what he's doing. His purpose is to align both his relationship to God and us to God as the mediator. He is bringing it all together. His righteousness is expunging sin out of humanity. He is, by living it, taking every ounce of it out as he does. Not just to pay the penalty for it, but to live out that alignment, that, that rightness, that straightness to God and to man in a way that no one ever has. Great John Donne, um, poet and author, wrote in the book of Uncommon Prayers, he said this way, he said the whole of Christ's life was a continual passion. Others die martyrs, but Christ was born a martyr. He found Golgotha, that is the, the hill where he was crucified, where he was crucified, even in Bethlehem, where he was born. For his tenderness, then there, the straws were almost too sharp as the thorns after, and the manger as uneasy as the first at first as the cross last. His birth and his death were but one continual act and his Christmas day and his Good Friday are but the evening and the morning of the same day. You see, this isn't just talking about <clears throat> him being born. It's talking also about his whole life, that his delight is in God, what he delights in, his character is that. I love the word delight in verse three. It means a good smell. It's an incredible Thanksgiving word because the entirety of Jesus's life is an aroma. It, you know, hopefully you were able to experience this. If you weren't, uh, hopefully you will at Christmas or at some other time. But when your whole apartment or home is full of what you've been cooking 
And maybe it's an all day thing. Maybe it's a crock pot that kind of fills the home. Maybe it's something you've put in the oven. Maybe it's just the myriad of things you've had. And I love that smell. We have had, some of the best things aren't just the Thanksgiving feast. It's actually the the leftovers afterwards because there's just this aroma that continues in my home. And I just love And it just is this constant smell. This is what Jesus is doing. He, like the best of any cook we can see, continues with his life bringing this aromatic smell to his father's nostrils so that his life takes ours up in it. And that he doesn't judge by what he sees or what he decides disputes by what he hears. Verse three, different than any other before him, his whole life is not about just sight and hearing. He doesn't get tripped up by the things that he sees or things that he hears that come in that people are tearing down others or himself. He is always bringing that same smell over and over with the same ingredients of righteousness in his relationship to God and man. So it's so fragrant when he comes. So that when he does, he, but with righteousness, he judges the poor and decide with equity the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with a rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. That is equity, that he brings it all into harmony. And what he does, and, and oftentimes we can read this and say, okay, this is Jesus, but did he do all that when he came? Well, some of that he did do. He marked the 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 uh, character of himself when he did come. You read that in the Gospels, the way that he judged. He didn't judge by what he saw or what he heard. He judged by that, uh, the ingredients of that aroma. But he also, this is looking ahead of what he's going to do in, in total. It's also what we pick up of what we're supposed to be in the kingdom, of this equity that he brings. Because this is what we're doing right now is we're helping prepare. We are tasked to prepare for this future that he's bringing in in verses six through nine. And one of the things that I love doing is, um, and Jordan, you saw a taste of this on the videos, when, when Jordan and I get to do uh, new member interviews for children. And I enjoy it because I actually get to sit back and um, allow Jordan just to navigate. And you probably saw some of that in the video. But I get to sit there and just enjoy it. And uh, every now and then, maybe there's a question thrown my way that is just incredible. But, um, but I love hearing that. And, and one of the things that Jordan brings with her when we do those interviews, it, to help the kids kind of talk about their past, present, and future are these, these pictures, these four pictures. The first one is a picture of, of uh, the garden. It's kind of like a, a river and some trees and, and kind of what creation looked like before sin entered into the picture. So it's just this kind of things are green and growing and, and, and kind of a nice, uh, maybe light spring look to it. But the next one is the picture of when sin enters and it looks like things are decaying or falling apart and uh, the, the, the stream is run out of water and it looks like the effects of that sin. But then comes the next one. It says, when Jesus comes to redeem, and it looks like new growth, right? From a winter into that spring, it looks like things are growing. But the picture that I love the most is after that is the picture that we haven't seen yet. It's the picture that is when Jesus returns and comes and brings everything of our future into fruition, It's a picture she often shows to them and they say, wow, this looks like there's all these new things 
in the picture. Even before sin entered, even before the first picture, in the fourth one, in the last one, there's so much growth, it's just overwhelming. So much, so many flowers, so many things to, to take in. It's almost the picture itself is overwhelming. It's the pictures of our past, our present, but that is our future of what God is bringing. And that's what we read in verse six through nine. We read in verses six, and uh, verse the wolf, verse six: the wolf shall dwell with the lamb; the leopard shall lie with the young goat; the calf and lion and fatted calf together, and little child shall lead them. What's going on? What's happening here is the picture of what Jesus is going to bring: that the predators and the prey actually have hospitable life together. Is that what Jesus is bringing back? Is what some commentators said when when creation was thrown out of joint and things have been put back in. Things have been put back together and not like when it was in the first picture, but swelling so much that restoration and healing swells to a total cosmic overhaul. My favorite um, song that we sing at Christmas is Joy to the World. And here's the reason I love it so much. There's such a complete picture in that hymn uh, that connects the spiritual and the physical. I think we've done that so often. We, we just divide the physical and the spiritual. And what this passage is doing, and it ends with the cow and the bear grazing and, and, and the nurse child, nursing child will play over the hole of the cobra. There are these pictures and images of that, this, this healing of the spiritual and physical, physical together. But I love where it says, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, for as the curse is found. And the reason that song is one of my favorites is because when Isaac Watts wrote that, he wrote that hymn, really surprisingly, not as a Christmas song. (laughs) He wrote it as a poem. See, he saw all of the singing in his day. They were singing psalms, and it comes from his reflections on Psalm 98. He was tasked to write this song, and he reflected on Psalm 98 because that's all the church did at that time. And his biggest beef with the church then was there was no joy, no joy going on in the church. He looked out on the disappointment. He looked out on the, the devastation, the sadness, the, the apathy of what people did. And he said, gosh, something needs to change. And so he wrote this hymn. He wrote this poem, actually, based on Psalm 98. And the original intent of joy to the world was not about Christmas. It was actually looking beyond that to the second coming. Notice, listen to the words. Make a joyful, this is from what stirred him. This is what struck his own heart for joy. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, verse four. All the earth, break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with the trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise to the Lord the King. Let the seas roar and all that fills it. The Lord and the, the world and those who dwell in it, let the rivers clap their hands and let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. That's what stirred his heart. Because you see, Advent isn't just about us looking back at Jesus first being born, it's actually us looking ahead. It's actually knowing that our past, our present, and our future is wrapped up in this one. 
wrapped up in the one who comes and takes it. The one who, lo, he not abhors the virgin's womb. He comes born like us in order to take up these things so that all of those pieces, all of the pictures laid out are complete in our lives. That's the joy we need as much as the devastation we look. As moments as I would love to walk down to the table in front of me and and the longing that I have to receive communion this morning. Would it remind us of our longing at Christmas, our reality of living in our present, knowing our past is taken up, our future is set, and we can live with joy in the midst of what's difficult we see around us because we have a Messiah in this figure that takes it up for us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reality that our past is swept up in you. That our present day right now is not surprising to you. And as even many have said, they have never seen a time like this in their whole life. Lord, this is not yet something that you are surprised at. You yourself even said, I'm gonna be born into the disappointment, the discouragement, the 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 oppression, the inequity, the injustice, in order that you could be that tender shoot that grows up with the greatest of character, because none of us can. We've displayed so much of the difficulty, trying to even maintain character in our present day and seeing it in those around us, and yet, God, we, we need your character to remind us that it wasn't just your birth, but your whole life in righteousness to set that that course, to bring that sweet smell to your nostrils, to be the ingredient that, that makes us right before both God and man so that we know that our whole lives are swept up in him and that we can rejoice with what our future holds and that it is not for naught. It is set, it is our hope and with the advent arrival, remind us of the second one we are looking forward to. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.